Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Cindy and Chrissy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with changing the ideals and expectations of motherhood. Every other week, we dive into the topics that matter to moms most, answering your most pressing questions as we learn from top-notch experts, swap stories, tap into our creative sides, and advocate for the causes that moms truly care about. All while hanging with your mom friends. We are so glad you're here. Let's dive in. We are so excited to sit down today with Dr. Joni Johnson. Dr. Joni is a pediatrician and certified health and wellness coach with over 12 years of clinical experience exclusively supporting individuals with ADHD, autism, learning disabilities, mood disorders, and behavior problems. Dr. Joni is a single mother of three and a grandmother of one. She received her BS in mechanical engineering management from the United States Military Academy at West Point and her MD from Albert Einstein College of Medicine. In addition to being a physician, Dr. Joni is also a retired army colonel, disabled veteran, author, public speaker, entrepreneur, and an individual with dyslexia and a visual convergence insufficiency. Today, we hear Dr. Joni's own struggles with an invisible difference, how she found her path to success, and how she has used her own personal journey as a means to help others. Get comfy and have a listen to Dr. Joni's advice on navigating the healthcare and school systems as you advocate for a child with different needs, how she recommends you prioritize your own self-care, and why she considers ADHD and autism to be superpowers. Dr. Joni, we are so excited to have you here today. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh my gosh, you're welcome. Just to give um, the listeners a little bit of background, when Chrissy and I were interviewing Dr. Joni for our expert panel, I was so excited. I got tears in my eyes because I am an atypical learner. I have anxiety and OCD and have worked on my attention throughout my whole life. And we were working through that with our daughter as well. And we were trying to navigate the system during the time actually that we were, we met Dr. Joni. And I was just so relieved to know that there was someone like you out there. And I'm thrilled to have you here today because I'm really, truly hoping that our conversation helps other moms and other parents to navigate this because it is extremely overwhelming. So thank you. You're welcome. To get us started, we are going to have a little bit of fun. Before we get into the nitty gritty, we're going to have some fun. Okay. How about some rapid fire questions? Okay. All right. So first one, fill in the blank. Motherhood is? Let's see. It is, oh, challenging. I think it's it's challenging. It's fulfilling, but it's challenging. I have teenagers, so yeah, it's a whole new level. (laughs) Absolutely agree. For sure. Cleanest room in your house. Oh, by far, it is my youngest daughter's bathroom. You cannot go in there because she does not like hair. What? Is amazing. (laughs) Yes. And she knows when somebody has been in her bathroom. So, yeah. How old is she? She is 16. Okay. You do not hear that often. (laughs) Oh, I know. You don't. And she even has a sign like, beware. If you enter this room, you can't wear shoes. You can't whatever. It's, it's. 
hilarious, but that is the cleanest room in my house. Fantastic. Wow. (laughs) What is bringing your life sanity right now? I would say my relationship with my significant other. Definitely. A lot of support. That's great. It's great to have someone that can help bring you off the ledge. Yeah. (laughs) You feel like you're you're at it, right? Oh my gosh. What do you look for in a mom friend? You know, shared experiences, you know, someone who is going through what I'm going through or has kids similar age. That's just really important. Someone who can relate. Wonderful. One thing you'd like to learn, you you know so much. Is there anything you don't know that you'd like to oh learn? Oh my gosh. There's so much that I don't know. I know what I know, but I also know what I don't know. So there, there's a lot. But one thing that I'm working on learning is how to ride a road bike. Oh, like just a regular bike with the skinny tires? The and- skinny tire one. Yeah. With the little curved handlebars. Yes. I'm learning to ride a road bike. I know you can get on a bike and just ride, but mm-hmm. you know, they got the click clip on pedals and the gears. So yeah, it's a learning process. So oh, yeah. yeah. When you're yeah, strapped in, that's intimidating. So much with the form too. Yeah. Like you yeah. Have all the angles. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You have to have the right clothes and, you know, padded. Yeah, the you know, padded tush. You have padded to have padded tush. tush. Yeah, so it, there's a lot to that. So and there's the even seats you can buy that relieve pressure for a man and a woman. It, it, there's, exactly. It's crazy. Exactly. So much stuff. Yep. So that's what I'm in the process of, of learning. Oh, how fun. What are you reading or watching right now? I'm going through the Chicago series. So I'm finishing up Chicago PD. And then I will binge watch Chicago Fire and then I will go to Chicago Mid. So I don't know why, but my my mother, I'll I'll just tell the the story real quick. She's 92. And so she has dementia. And when you sit with her, she's always watching Chicago, whatever. And after about three hours of sitting with her watching Chicago PD, I had to know who these people were. So I started binging it. So that's what I'm doing. (laughs) And you love it. I do. I do. It's really interesting. So I like it. All right. We'll write that one down. We'll have to get on that one. (laughs) At first I thought you were talking about a book and I was like, I haven't heard of this book. No, the TV series. There's like this big Chicago fire PD mid three different shows, but they all kind of interact with each other. Wednesday nights. Great. Yeah. (laughs) We have to get on that one. How do you picture your empty nest days? You're getting close, aren't you? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I have one more my daughter is a junior and then I will be done, but I have grand, a grandson who's in the nest right now. So I need to get rid of him. Um, <laughs> How old is he? Might be a while then. He's four and a half, but his mom is in basic training. So when she comes back, she's a, a lawyer. So she's in JAG basic training. So when she comes back, then he, I get, I get to kick him out when she's back. But um, I just want to do whatever brings me joy, whatever that is. Can you give us a a little snapshot of what that might be? What brings um, you joy? You know, traveling, doing home improvement projects, refinishing or uh, repurposing furniture, those type of things really bring me joy. So I want to do that and with the special people in my life. So that makes it even better. Oh, that sounds so lovely. It does. You're speaking my language right there. Those are all, all my areas. I love it. Dr. Joni, you are an impressive individual. Uh, You have a long list of credentials and your your story of how you came to do what you do is just incredibly fascinating. Um, You know, from how you got into West Point and how you went through and, and 
succeeded there and then moved on, became a pediatrician, how you even, um, you know, your time overseas in particular and leaving your little baby behind and how hard that must have been. Um, your, your journey has just, it has been very fascinating to me to learn more about you. In particular, what we're here talking about today is your clinical experience with supporting individuals with ADHD, autism, learning disabilities, mood disorders, and behavior problems. You have over 12 years exclusively working with those individuals. Can you share a bit about your story and how you wound up working in this capacity? Yeah, so I'm a firm believer in we do not direct our own path and everything happens for a reason. And so, you know, my story and how I I came to where I am today really started in second grade. And I know you said you read the book. So you know that that my story starts by me saying in second grade, I couldn't read. And and the reality is, is I was a high achieving or high functioning learner. So I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what was wrong. And because I was high achieving and had good grades, even though I asked for help, nobody took me seriously. And so I struggled through high school. I went to West Point. I had to be very creative to make it through there. And it was when I was in medical school that I failed. You know, I had never failed before and didn't even know how to handle that. But I thought that meant that I had to go back into the army, that, you know, my dream of being a doctor just would never happen. And um, when I went to the school to say, hey, how do I, you know, go back to the army and, and, you know, do what I'm supposed to do? They said, oh, no, if you've gotten in here, if you made it this far, it's our job to make sure that you finish. And that was amazing to me. And my school sent me for testing. They had a second opinion. They found out that I have dyslexia and a visual convergence insufficiency. And then they provided all of these accommodations. So I, they decelerated me, which meant instead of taking four years to finish medical school, they actually gave me seven. I only took five, but you know, they said, you pay for four, we'll give you seven. And they told me, you know, you have a family, you have to devote your weekends to the family. So they didn't want me studying on the weekends. It it was just, it was amazing the support that they provided. You know, I took tests by myself in a private room. I had extra time. I had extra time on the board exam. And that experience really defined what my purpose would be. I didn't realize that at the time, but it truly did. And, you know, I'm where I'm at today, helping people with autism and ADHD and learning problems, because that's my story. And basically when I was in the army, I I wound up having to leave active duty because they wanted to send me back to Iraq and I wasn't going back, not with a child, a one-year-old who didn't remember who I was. But so I left active duty and I went to work at Walter Reed as the medical director for this program called the Exceptional Family Member Program. Now for the military, this is a program that ensures that if you have a, if a service member has a family member who needs special uh, attention for whatever reason, whether it's medical or academic, that they don't send that service member to a location that can't not support the family. So being in charge of that program, I was able to see really the impact of special needs on families. And that resonated with me. And being a a clinician, this was an administrative job. But Walter Reed said to me, you have to still see patients. So you define the patient population you want to work with that will be in alignment with, you know, your job. 
in, in EFMP. And so there I was able to create a multidisciplinary program with, you know, physicians, psychologists, educational advocates. And basically I tried to replicate, replicate what my medical school had done for me. And so from Walter Reed, I wound up going into private practice because I realized just the impact it was having on military families, you know, how, how we could provide the same type of organization, not just for military dependents, but for all dependents who needed support particularly those high-functioning individuals who were screaming for help and nobody was hearing them. So, I mean, that's just an abbreviated version of how, how I got there, but it was all by happenstance. I didn't select any, any of the things that, that I've done or that I'm doing. Um, it just hit me that all of these experiences really needed to culminate into you know, helping this population that I think fiercely needed it. And isn't that just the story of life, right? That that's how things happen. But absolutely, um, it it was Albert Einstein College of Medicine, correct? Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Yep, it's and part of the Shiva University. How incredible that they were able to do that, recognize that, give you that time. That is just so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it wasn't just me that Albert Einstein, like I said, is part of Yeshiva University. It's a Jewish school and um, they don't just take Jewish people, obviously. But the Jewish community is culturally they succeed together. Right. And so they take that philosophy seriously. The school was made up of a lot of older students. So when I went there, I was a a parent with a a six month old and my husband at the time was at West Point, which was an hour away. And I was in the Bronx and my child was with him for most of the week. And I saw that they embraced families there. So there were a lot of students who had families, who had kids, and it was designed to support the entire student, not just academically, but socially, um, social, emotionally as well. And so this program that they never advertised, I mean, the only people who really knew about it were the students who were struggling for whatever reason. But it was just amazing to me that they were able to see something deeper. And far too often, we don't look deep within individuals to see what their true potential is. We allow their obstacles to define them. And this school didn't do that. So, you know, I'm forever indebted. And I tell anybody, if you want to go to medical school and you have any challenge whatsoever, you need to think about going to Albert Einstein because they will get you through for sure. It's such an incredible philosophy and one I wish we could see across the board in in all of our educational institutions. Absolutely. 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 I, I feel that what you said has just resonated so much with me because there's been such an increase in the past 20 years in the amount of research and the recognition of the needs that atypical learners require. And back when I was growing up, that wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So being a high functional individual, I slipped through the cracks and it's, I'm just so grateful that things like this are, are there. And now hopefully we can, we have you and we can help direct parents how to get these resources. Absolutely. One of which is through your book, you wrote an Amazon bestseller called My Blue Eyes. And in this book, you give the readers an idea of what it's like living through an atypical lens, sharing your story as well as that of some of your patients. Can you talk to us a little bit on why you felt it was important to write this book? 
Yeah. You know, and that's a funny question because I didn't feel that it was important to write the book. I would have never, you know, I, I think I say in the foreword, you know, I don't read. So the idea of me writing a book just was like, why would I do that? But I wrote it because people around me expressed the need to hear more of, the, of my story and the stories of others. And it was really, it, it was my brother who encouraged me to do it. So I have to give all the 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 respect to him for that. But when I would give a workshop, I frequently would tell my the story of my patients. And it never failed that during the workshop, someone would say, hey, you just told about a kid named Johnny. I have a Johnny at home. Um, the stories resonated. And there were people who would believe that their child was just a bad kid or he was unmotivated or she was lazy. And they didn't realize that there was a name behind it, right? And so when I would tell the story of my patients, it helped, I think, the parents to see that there was more to it, that, that this was a child who was struggling and just didn't know how to say it. And then I think in telling my story, the feedback that I received was that people needed to see that you could have dyslexia and you could have a visual convergence insufficiency, or you can have ADHD or autism, and you can become a doctor. You can go into the military and become a colonel. And so it, it was really others who I interacted with that helped me to see that there was value in hearing my story and there was hope in my story. And, you know, when you live it, you, you don't see the hope, you see the struggle more so than anything else. And so I think that's why I felt the need to write it. And hopefully it will inspire others to get the help, you know, to see either themselves or their children in one of the stories and to recognize that there is help out there. I'm sure that this book is going to help so many people and Thank you to you and your brother for pushing you into writing it. And congratulations on the success that it's had so far. Thank you. Thank you. Speaking of the book, there's one passage where you're talking about blue eye syndrome. You talk about the fact that having blue eyes are not typical. And you say, I see having blue eyes as being different, but being different doesn't automatically mean that something's wrong and needs to be fixed. This perspective, my perspective, is the same vantage point that I use when working with my patients who have autism, ADHD, and learning disabilities. My patients and all others like them don't need to be fixed. All they need is some TLC, understanding, appreciation, and most importantly, support. And I think that's just such a beautiful, accurate picture of who you are and the work that you're doing. Um, so I, I very much, that stood out to me as the purpose of the book and, and what the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Um, so you're not just doing this book though. You also have a course coming out behind the behaviors mm -hmm. in which you help navigate the misconceptions that exist around ADHD, autism, learning disabilities. Can you talk a little bit about some of those common misconceptions and why it's important for us to be aware of them? I think the biggest one that I talk about in Behind the Behaviors, and, and what that is, is a mastermind series, a 10-week mastermind series. And so there are 10 short, 30 minutes, some go 40 minutes, but primarily 30-minute kind of workshops or presentations about different topics. And over the years, these are topics that I've presented on that have really resonated with families who we're coming into an understanding of what is ADHD or what is autism or what does it mean for you or your child to have a learning disability. And, and the main thing that, that 
I hope to accomplish through the series is to empower people to believe that these things, one is who you are. If you have ADHD, if you have autism or you have a learning disability, you were born that way. And I know a lot of people think it came from gluten or sugar or an immunization, but no, this is who you are. And this is who, you know, your God, if you believe in one, has determined you will be. It's not a curse. This is a gift. And so that's something I really emphasize because far too often, I think society paints autism or ADHD or even having a learning uh, difference to be bad to be for you to be less than and to not be able to contribute to society as much as someone who doesn't have these things. And so what I try to show people through behind the behaviors is um, not only are you not less than in some cases, having these talents or these gifts, as I like to call them, makes you more than. Um, And so one of the uh, modules talks about ADHD and autism as a superpower. And so what I try to get people to see is, yes, there are super challenges that come along with it. But if we spend all of our time focusing on the challenges, we miss the gifts and the superpowers that we are given. And and I try to show people who the superheroes are. So if you were to Google, you know, Fortune 500 um, CEOs with autism or ADHD, you will see people that you didn't realize, like Bill Gates, like Steve Jobs. It's because of their ADHD and their autism that they are able to think outside of that box, Mm -hmm. that they are able to focus and hone in and hyper-focus at times on the gifts that they've been given, and they're able to produce amazing things. And so, you know, part of the the series is to really illustrate um, that these are super gifts and to help people to move beyond the challenges. Yes, we have to address the challenges sometimes. Sometimes we just have to let the challenges go. Um, and and develop the strengths. But I hope to show people to help to change their mindset and to show them a different perspective and then to give them tools so that they can truly empower themselves or their their family members. Is is this course designed for parents or is it also for educators and other doctors and medical professionals? It's for anybody. And so we have, you know, doctors have taken the course, parents, educators, teachers, organizations, a lot of nonprofit organizations have taken it. And basically what I did was those 10 or 12, uh, these are, have all been workshops that I've given around Virginia. I've given for the army. I've given in childcare facilities. I've So I've tried and tested this material and it has truly resonated with so many folks that um, I just packaged it. I realized with COVID, I couldn't get out like I had been to get to the ARC and different organizations, you know, the Chad Foundation and different things in the area to give these talks. And so instead, what I did is I packaged them so that you didn't have to wait for me to be someplace to talk about these things. You can take that information, use it as you need to use it, go back and rely on it. And it also gives you access to me. And so there are mastermind groups within the course. So as you're taking a module, if you have questions, you have a direct link to me to ask those questions or to talk about resources or to talk about other people who may be going through the course at the same time. So it's really for anybody who has an interest in supporting the community that involves neurodevelopmental diversity like this. That's fantastic. We'll make sure that we link that in the show notes too. Perfect. Thank you. Oh, this is really exciting. You you. have, well, throughout our discussion so far, 
one of the the terms that we've used is slip through the cracks. Mm -hmm. And often that's used for individuals who, um, who might be high functioning that are compensating well for their, their learning disability or for their attention struggles. And the system doesn't notice them or deem them able to receive the proper services. Right. And so in turn, they struggle in silence essentially, Mm -hmm. and they just become super stressed out various different ways of compensating for what they're, uh, what they're working through. Right. As parents, what are some things that we should be on the lookout for with our children to recognize these things, uh, whether it's going to be completely obvious or whether it's something that's a little bit more under the radar. Um, I can say with our daughter, she's high functioning and the school was not recognizing her until my husband and I said, wait a minute. Yes, she might be, be, you know, getting good grades and whatnot, but we're on the other side and we see how she's struggling with her schoolwork and we are recognizing how she's not memorizing certain things. And, and the school actually used the phrase, we reserve IEPs or support for quote unquote kids who really need them. And I just would love to dive into this with you a little bit on what parents should be on the lookout for, how they notice when their child may need help and where to go for assistance. So, I mean, you bring up a lot of, of good points. The quote unquote high functioning, and I, I'm, I'm an advocate for removing that term high functioning from everybody's vocabulary because of how the school thinks about someone who's high functioning. Basically, when you say high functioning to a, to someone in the school system, it means they don't need help. And we in the medical community created that monster because, you know, I don't know if you've, you're familiar with Asperger's, but Asperger's used to be, you know, the high functioning. We didn't, we don't even include you on the autism spectrums spectrum because you're super duper smart, but those kids were so smart that their socialization was the issue, but because their grades were fine and, you know, top of the class, we felt they didn't need help. And we no longer use the term Asperger's because we truly failed that population because we didn't provide the socialization skills that they needed. So, you know, just because someone functions well in one area doesn't mean that they're not struggling in another. Um, And so as a parent, sometimes you have the, the greatest insight and sometimes you don't. But as a parent, if you are providing more than what you would consider to be typical amounts of help, then that should raise a flag. I'll use myself as an example. My parents were educators. So I would go to school and kind of not really understand what they were saying. And I would come home and my parents would re-educate me. And they would spend a lot of time doing it. And so much time that I wasn't out playing with the other kids. So I was missing out on those typical things that kids do, playing on the playground and playing sports and things of that nature. So as a parent, if you're finding that you're reteaching, or if you're finding that you're, you're spending more than that 30 minutes on homework, and that's, that's the average amount of time you're supposed to give to homework is 30 minutes. If you're spending two hours or your kids are missing things because you're spending so much time, either on Saturdays or Sundays or after school, something is going on. You know, it's not your job to do the primary teaching. Yes, it's your job to supplement, to reinforce, 
but they're in school for that. So if you're finding that you are doing the teaching, it's not because the teacher isn't a good teacher. It's because your child learns differently than how they're being taught in school, right? And, and there are eight learning styles, not three, but most teachers teach to the top three, right? And that makes sense in that environment, right? They can't teach every individual child. But if you're finding that you're having to reteach and maybe teach differently, then that's a clue that something is going on. The other clue that I would say to parents to consider is when your child tells you they need help. Um, and far too often, we don't hear that. Kids will say, I had a, a parent two days ago, tell me that their child asked to see a therapist. Their 12-year-old said, I think I might need therapy. Well, we'll hear that from a kid and we'll say, you don't need therapy. You're fine. No, if a kid says, I need therapy, or maybe I need medication, or you know, I need extra help, stop and pay attention to that because kids won't ask for help if they really don't need it. And they'll ask for it maybe jokingly because they don't know how else to ask. Okay, so um, I really implore parents when your kids say, I need this, I need help, I need medicine, I need tutoring, I need a therapist, hear them and respond. You know, as far as dealing with the school, we have to realize that schools have limited resources um, and that's of no fault of their own. They only have what they have. And so those resources are going to go to the kids that need them the most. Now, you as a parent may say, yeah, but my kid needs it too. And you're right. But what that may mean to you as a parent is that you have to seek support outside of the school. So instead of counting on the school to provide testing and evaluation for your child, you may need to go to an independent therapist or independent psychologist and pay for that. And I would say to you, yes, it's an expense, but it's an expense that your child is worth. And it, sometimes it's not worth fighting the school to get resources that they just don't have. If you have resources either through your insurance or some other way, some other means to get that testing. Once you can prove that your child does, in fact, learn differently, then they'll give you that support. But they just may not have the resources initially if your child has A's or B's in class and we've got another child over here who's failing or is two grade levels behind it makes sense that those resources immediately are going to go to that child who is behind um, the standard deviations that they use. So it's very difficult for school systems um, to provide that help. And so parents do have to be aware and have to know that they can go to their, their pediatrician and, and, and express concerns, that they can request um, that through the healthcare system that they have testing done through an educational psychologist or a clinical psychologist who can provide that. Um, and then use organizations outside of the school system um, to, to gain additional information. Organizations like you know the ARC, I think that's a nationwide organization for kids with special needs or CHAD or even Autism Speaks to seek those type of organizations to find who in your community offering services because in order for these kids to really be successful, it takes a village. So it takes family, it takes the school system, it takes their primary care providers and then um, educational specialists to really all be involved so that kids will reach their fullest potential. If I'm hearing you correctly, you, you're saying you're directing parents to the first stop if you're noticing something would be to talk to your pediatrician. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying your first stop is to talk to everybody and anybody who will listen. 
So if you're concerned academically that, there, that something isn't right, by all means, you want to go to your school and your teacher. Okay. Um, at the same time, you want to go to your pediatrician. At the same time, you may even want to request testing. See, here's the problem with this system. Um, and this is why I do what I do. Um, and that is because everybody owns a small piece of the puzzle. And, and they know their piece, and that's the piece they know, and that's the only piece that they know. So if you go to a pediatrician and you say, you know, my, my child's grades are not great, that pediatrician may say, well, you need to go talk to the school. If you go to the pediatrician and say, I'm concerned my child has ADHD, then they're going to know how they can help. If you go to the school and say, I think my kid might have ADHD, well, they don't diagnose ADHD. So they may say, We'll, we'll go to the, your pediatrician. So the problem is, is that everybody owns a piece of this. And as a parent, if you don't know what your concern is or what piece is playing a role here, sometimes you don't know who specifically to ask to go to. And so that's why I say, if you have you know, somebody like me who kind of understands all of the pieces and can help you put those pieces together and help to direct you, then go to that person first. But short of that, you have to go all of the places that you just, you know, you have to throw stuff against every wall out there and see where it sticks. So you want to go to the school and maybe they can direct you appropriately. You want to go to your doctor, maybe they can direct you appropriately. You want to look at, you know, if your school has a resource center, go to the resource center and say, these are the concerns I'm having. Where do you think I should go? It's not an ideal system. I wish it were, but it's not. And recognize if you go one place and they say, oh, I think it's fine, but you still have concerns, you got to go to the next place. You can't stop there and say, well, the doctor said my kid was okay. But if you're still concerned, you still need to inquire at the school or ask for testing. So it's not an easy answer, unfortunately. Thank you so much. Yes, you've given some amazing information already. This is very helpful to a lot of moms to know exactly how to start because that's the one of the hardest parts of starting. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. Dr. Jenny, this might be a question. You, there might not really be an answer out there that we really know, but how, how common are learning disabilities? Is there a stat or a number for this? There are numbers for autism. You know, we know one in 58, I think it's one in 58 now, it may have changed, but there are numbers for ADHD and there are numbers for autism. They're not really good numbers for learning disabilities or what I like to say, learning differences, because there's so many, you know, and, and then there's a question of, well, I learn differently. I have a different learning style. Does that mean that I have a learning disability? And the reality is a learning difference, meaning I'm not an auditory or a visual or kinesthetic learner. I am a analytical learner. That doesn't mean I have a disability. That just means I need to be taught differently. So when you talk about stats for learning disabilities, it's not easy to pinpoint those because it's just, it's vast. It's, it's just vast. Yeah. Yeah. One of the stories, a patient story in your book, I need quiet when I'm trying to like really think and write or something like that. And um, I just thought that was fascinating. And I am a former teacher. So I definitely recognize that difference in a lot of my students. So mm -hmm. it's just nice to hear that and see that, I guess, in a patient story and how you helped her navigate that situation. Right. Right. I mean, I think, you know, one thing parents can take away from this is that everybody learns differently. 
doesn't mean they're disabled, but people learn differently. And unfortunately, we approach learning based on our own lens. So if I'm a parent and I like quiet, when I'm setting the environment for my child to learn, what do I do? I turn off the TV. I put the dog outside. I tell the sibling, you got to go into your room. But if your child is a musical learner, they need noise. And so what you've done by making the room quiet is now you've made it more difficult for your child to learn. And so what we have to do is pay attention to what our children naturally gravitate to. I'll tell a quick story about my own daughter. My daughter, uh, my oldest, um, who's an attorney now, she's a musical learner and she's an analytical learner. And the analytical learners are the ones that ask why all the time. You know, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do that? Why? And that gets on our nerves as parents, right? And we eventually will say, because I said to, just do it, right? Well, she's that learner and she's musical. So when I had my practice, she would sit at the front desk, um, you know, to check patients in. And it would drive me crazy because she'd always have her laptop up there and her laptop was playing a movie. And in my mind, I'm thinking, this is not okay. A patient comes up and sees you with a laptop playing a movie. No, that's not going to work. So I told her, you know, to put the laptop away. But what was interesting, she fought me on it and she would sneak it back up every time I turned around. But when I would watch her and the laptop was there, she wasn't paying attention to the laptop. But because there was noise and there was activity, she was efficient. She was answering phone calls. She was booking appointments. She was sending off forms. She was making copies. She was doing everything. But when I told her to take the laptop away, she was sitting there. Such an amazing story. Right. And so did the laptop come back? Absolutely. The laptop came back. It was positioned so patients couldn't see it. But the kids, as parents, our kids will always tell us what they need to learn. We just don't pay attention. And we're not willing to give them what they need. So let's pay attention and be willing. I'm so, I'm laughing right now for those of you that are listening and can't see, mainly because our daughter said, mommy, I need to have music when I'm studying. And I'm thinking she's got ADD. How is music going to help her focus more on what she's doing? Because I'm thinking she's going to be listening to Usher and things <laughs> like that. Right. And I'm like, the words are just going to distract you. No, you, and I guess this is a perfect segue into my next question for you. We have the diagnosis and now we are just trying to understand our child and get them the help that they need. Mm-hmm. How do you have suggestions for how a parent should handle the next steps once they receive that diagnosis and knowing their child's brain, recognizing they need music, they don't need music, they're an atypical or they're a Uh, auditory learner versus a visual learner? Do they need therapy? Do they need medicine? Should we go the natural route and do CBD oil? (laughs) What's Mm -hmm. the, what are the answers here? Right. So your daughter or your child will help to determine what those answers are. You know, the question is who's going to help you to figure that out. So hopefully the person who gave you the diagnosis Hopefully they figured these, some of these things out for you and they wrote a nice little report with recommendations. You know, even when you talk about she's a musical learner and she needs music to focus. Well, I've been instrumental in getting kids IEPs where they're allowed to have one ear, earbud in and they're listening to music in one ear and listening to the teacher in the other. So that is possible. 
Okay, I've had kids who have had metronomes on their desk because it's not music, it's noise. And so if they've got the ding, 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 they can focus. So the key is, is once you know this information, you can get them the support. It just needs to be documented. There needs to be someone who is considered an authority who can say, yes, this is what this child needs. So hopefully that's your pediatrician or your psychologist whoever did the testing or the evaluation to come up with that diagnosis. Now, the schools are helpful, too, because oftentimes once you have that diagnosis, so you, you have that test from the psychologist or something from your pediatrician, you take that to the school. Now they're required to do some type of evaluation to determine what supports your child needs to be successful in school. That's a requirement. Understand ADHD and autism are legally or are legal diagnosis. Once your child has ADHD, they have a legal disability. Okay. So you take that diagnosis to the school, they can't say to you anymore, well, I gotta give, I, I have to talk about this other child. No, because you've proven that your child needs help. Then they should do that evaluation to determine in that environment what help your child specifically needs. Okay, so the key is that diagnosis and then finding the support people to help you figure out, does she need medication? Does she need CBD oil? Does she need to go see a therapist? But your child, if we involve them, will help you to figure that out as well. Okay, so even a child who's 10 years old or nine even can help you to, to determine what it is that makes things easier if we ask them. And oftentimes as parents, we don't ask. And kids, like I said, some kids will say to you, I think I need medicine. And parents might be so opposed to medicine that they don't hear them. But if your child asks for it, try it. Not everybody needs medicine, though. And I do want to emphasize that. A lot of people believe and a lot of providers believe that if you give a diagnosis of ADHD, the next step is to give some Ritalin or some Concerta. No, not every child at diagnosis needs medicine. And if your child is one that can be successful with accommodations, then I would say don't use the medicine. But there will come a time in their life where medicine will be beneficial. Okay, so do know that. But just because they've been given that diagnosis does not mean that that is the time that they need the medicine. I hope that made sense. Oh, absolutely. Really quickly, um, before we move on to our next question for you. Can you just let us know what professionals do what? So psychologist would be one that would do private testing. Psychiatrist could do medicine. Can you help us there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I will tell you, because I'll go through it as best I can, but in Behind the Behaviors, there's a whole module that talks about who does what, because it's very confusing. A pediatrician or a family practitioner is trained only in ADHD. So if you go to a pediatrician or family practitioner and say, my child is not doing well in school, they're going to do an evaluation for ADHD. They can also prescribe medicine for ADHD. And when you talk about anxiety and depression, they can do a little bit of anxiety and depression too. A psychologist will do testing for learning disabilities. And oftentimes part of testing for learning disabilities will also include an evaluation for ADHD. Now, if you're concerned about autism, a psychologist, some psychologists are trained to evaluate and diagnose autism. But I will tell you, a lot of them say 
they diagnose autism and all they do is a screening tool. So you just have to be careful. You, you want to make sure if you're concerned about autism, that you're really asking additional questions. You know, what is your experience been with autism? What tools do you use? There's a tool called the ADOS. That is the gold standard. And not all psychologists do an ADOS. So if you have a psychologist who doesn't do an ADOS, then they're really not going to give you a definitive diagnosis of autism. Can't without the ADOS. A psychiatrist is medication only. And so people need to know that a psychiatrist is not really trained in autism. A lot of them are not interested in ADHD. And so they're more of your mood disorders, but they can do medication for all of those things. Again, you want to always ask, what is your comfort level with ADHD and autism? Because let me take a step back. ADHD and autism is something we all get a little bit of, but it's difficult. It's time consuming. And so a lot of providers choose not to really work with patients who have ADHD and autism. And so you want to ask that question. You don't want to assume that just because you're a pediatrician or just because you're a psychologist or just because you're a psychiatrist, that you're comfortable with this. And the, these diagnoses are diagnoses that you really want to treat. Some psychologists won't do testing for dyslexia. They'll do when they do uh, learning disability testing, they're looking at IQs. And so again, an IQ doesn't tell you whether you have a learning difference or not. Then you have folks like a developmental pediatrician. Now I will tell you, if you're concerned about ADHD, if you're concerned about autism, any of these neurodevelopmental issues like learning disabilities, those are all neurodevelopmental issues. Even speech delays, motor delays are neurodevelopmental. The person that is trained to do all neurodevelopmental disabilities is a developmental pediatrician. Here's the problem. They are in short supply. So they will always have a six month to a year waiting list. So this is why we tend to have people like me. I'm a general pediatrician, but I've been trained by developmentalists in the military to do ADHD and autism. To, to take some of that backlog away from our developmentalists. And so that's kind of how I got into it. I know more about these things than a general pediatrician would because I was interested. And so I sought out the additional training. But the developmentalist is the one you really want to see, but you're going to wait. And so while you're waiting, you, you'll use these other providers, the psychologist, the general pediatrician or family practitioner, and the psychiatrist to kind of provide that support until you can definitively see the developmentalist. I hope that helped because it is confusing. The key is to make sure you, as a parent, all of us, I, I want parents to hear me say this, we are your consultants. We are your advisors. You as the parent, you're the head of your child's healthcare team. So that means ask the question. So many parents are afraid of offending a doctor. You know, I don't want to challenge the doctor by asking if they really know ADHD or if they really know autism, challenge them. Because I'm telling you, a lot, of, a lot of them don't know. And they're not necessarily going to volunteer to you that they don't know beyond the basics. And if you have a child with autism or ADHD, you need somebody in your corner who knows beyond the basics. This episode is sponsored by Behind the Behaviors, a 10-week online course designed to redefine what differences really mean. 
Dr. Joni Johnson helps participants navigate through the misconceptions of ADHD, autism, learning disabilities, mood disorders, and other behavior problems. Dr. Joni walks you from a place of fear to acceptance, providing an overview of challenging behaviors, teaching you ways to embrace the superpowers of invisible disabilities, exploring why autism in girls is often missed, understanding the different interventions and medications that are available, exploring effective communication techniques, discussing the new normal of parenting children with special needs, and talking about what to do if you, the adult, are the one with ADHD or autism, and covering strategies and techniques for managing those challenging behaviors. Behind the Behaviors is designed for anyone interested in learning more about autism and ADHD and is based on the extensive feedback Dr. Joni has received from the countless workshops she has led on these topics. Past course participants include doctors, teachers, and parents. We are excited to offer listeners of Mama Needs a Moment a very generous 50% discount on Dr. Joni's Behind the Behaviors online course. Using the link provided in our show notes, enter the code at checkout per health collection. Fantastic. Speaking of the parents, I would love to transition very briefly into talking a little bit about them and how they are handling things. You recently wrote a fantastic article for us on parenting a child with special needs, which we'll again link in the show notes. You talked about four core concepts to help a parent find ways to care for themselves while parenting a child with special needs. We know that parenting can be more intense when you have a child with ADHD, autism, um, learning disability, mood disorder, and behavioral problems. How can parents make this more manageable? Do you have any additional resources that you suggest or just suggestions for navigating that aspect of parenthood? Right. A couple things I want to say. First thing I want to say is to a parent who has a child with a special needs need is to use your village. Okay. If you don't have a village, the first thing you need to do is build one because you're not going to be able to manage this by yourself. And I'm just going to keep it real with you. You're not. And so even as much as we think we can keep all those balls in the air, a ball is going to fall and you want to be able to determine what that ball is and who's going to pick it up for you. So build your village. And in your village, you're going to obviously have your family, but you know, you're going to have your pediatrician is going to be in your village, your psychiatrist, your therapist, your coach, Maybe you'll have a speech uh, therapist or occupational therapist, your teacher, the uh, nonprofit organizations in your community. These are people in your village and you need to use them because when you have a child with special needs, things are going to come up and you are not going to, you're going to be blindsided. Okay. You know, people like me want to help you to be proactive, but things are going to come up and you're not going to be ready for it. The other thing I want parents to know is that these conditions, I hate the word condition, but these characteristics, these traits run in families. Okay. So as a pediatrician, if I diagnose a kid with ADHD, there's a parent with ADHD, there's a brother with ADHD, there's a grandmother with ADHD, there is somebody else in that family system that has ADHD. Okay. Same thing with learning issues, same thing with autism, same thing with, you know, any of these neurodevelopmental things that we're talking about. If you're born with them, that means there's a gene, there's a genetic link. I say that to you as parents because so many of my parents struggled 
in taking care of their kids with ADHD because they had ADHD themselves and were undiagnosed. Okay. And after a while, they realized it. After a while, the light bulb came on and they said, I think I might have what Junior has. Yeah, you do. Okay. And that's okay. But what happens in in parents is we've been compensating, right? We've been compensating this whole time because nobody was there to diagnose us. And we've been doing pretty well until we had a child who's struggling the way we're struggling. And so now it's hard for us to compensate for ourselves and support our child. So I say that to say to you as a parent, if you're really struggling and your village is still not helping, look within yourself. Yes, you've got to take care of yourself. You have to provide that time. You have to, you know, do some mindfulness and meditation and, and all of that stuff. But look within yourself as well to see if you're struggling in many of the ways that your child is, because there is help for you as well. Okay, so just like we send your child to a behavioral therapist to learn different strategies and techniques to manage, to organize, to deal with those executive functioning skills, you may need those same skills to be developed within yourself. And it's okay. And so one of the big things I say to parents is, when I tell you to take time for yourself, I don't just mean take time to, you know, woosah and, you know, do a yoga class. I mean, take some time to determine if you're struggling. Um, and I would say this to my parents all the time because I would see them come in and I would see the parent from month to month look more tired and more weary. If you go down, parent, who's going to help your child? So sometimes I would even say to them, you know, I'm giving you three months off. Don't bring your child back here. Your child's going to be okay. I want you to take the copay money. I want you to take the appointment time and take care of yourself. Okay. So I just really want to emphasize that you really need to, if you're really struggling and your village isn't helping and all of the self-care stuff that we talk about is really not making a difference. Sometimes it's because we've been undiagnosed and that is okay. Get yourself the help you need so that you can help your child. Thank you so much, Dr. Joni. That's so great. And it is a really fantastic article that you wrote. We did have a question pop in from one of our Her Circle members, and it is actually right in line with what we just asked you. Uh, She asked, what do you tell parents in terms of their own coping with a child's diagnosis of something like autism? So I guess spinning it more specifically towards the, the coping with the diagnosis. Right, right. So what I think is always the first step for parents when you are receiving a new diagnosis, particularly a diagnosis like autism, is to get as much information as you can. I caution you, getting information doesn't mean Google, okay? Because Google sometimes will mess you up, right? There's, there's so much misinformation on Google that it will scare you to death. But what I, what I want you to do is to be empowered by those people that are working with your child to help you to understand what autism means in your child. There's this saying, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. What that saying means is every single person with autism presents differently. And so if you listen to Google, even if you listen to a friend who has a child with autism, you may hear some things that will scare you to death. And you may say to yourself, but my child doesn't do that. 
You've got to learn what autism means for your child. What are your child's struggles? Where are the areas in your child where they really outperform, where they really shine? The only people who can help you to understand that are the, the care providers who have provided that diagnosis. Once you are empowered with what autism means for your child, then you can go forward to help your child to be successful. I believe, and, and this is just my belief, but and I don't I don't mean to get spiritual on you guys, but you know, I believe that my God doesn't make a mistake. Okay. And so what that means to me is if your child was put here and they have autism, it was intended for your child to have autism. There is something great within your child who has autism. You just might have to find it. Quick story: 13-year-old patient of mine who was diagnosed with autism, had wonderful family. Um, he was nonverbal and he didn't like to be touched. So he had a hard time in, in crowds, but he liked to touch other people. So that was, that was a struggle. Um, so a nonverbal child, he's 13, he likes to touch people, difficulty in crowds. For a lot of parents, that would be a child who maybe didn't have much to offer. He bakes like crazy. And at 13, his parents established a nonprofit bakery. And I will tell you, every time I had any kind of event, I went to his bakery, which was called Whippoorwill, and he baked the most phenomenal cookies. What that family did is they didn't consume themselves with what their child could not do. Instead, they focused on what he could do, what he was put here to do that made him special and made him great. That was his contribution. And they, they developed that instead of worrying about all the things he couldn't do. So it's scary to get that diagnosis of autism, but you've got to take the time to learn um, what your child's challenges are and what their skill set, their positive skills are, and then go towards developing those. Truly beautiful story. Just, it's made me speechless almost, but let's go on. Okay. <laughs> Was there anyone else that wanted to uh, pop in with a question at all? Hey, Cindy, I have a question. Sure. Hi, Dr. Joni. Hey, Carolyn. How are you? Good. How are you? Great. Thank you. The last question was actually from me. I have a six-year-old son who was diagnosed with autism three years ago. So I have, you know, come a long way since the initial diagnosis. Um, and now that he's kind of at that age where I feel like he's going to start noticing he has some differences, we started talking to him about his diagnosis and in a way that I feel like he'll understand. My question is just what tips and tricks can you give to parents about broaching that conversation with their kids that, you know, there is something different about you. And I know you said talking about it as a superpower. I've already told my son, like, you're a superhero. Your brain is amazing. But I know for him, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. So just right. trying to figure out how to balance talking about the pros and the cons of whatever the diagnosis is. Yeah. Unfortunately, there is no manual, communication manual that tells you how to do all of these things. Um, but you started in the right direction just having the conversation, highlighting, there are gonna be things that he's not gonna be able to do. There are gonna be things that other kids do better than he does, and that's okay. And it's okay to be honest with him. You know what, buddy, that's just, maybe soccer isn't your thing. Do you enjoy it? Yeah, I, well, you know what? If you enjoy it, then go out there and do your best. 
you know, well, you know, he said, well, no, it's not my thing. I really don't want, okay, well, what is it that you want to do? You know, exposure is important, but accepting when something just isn't for them is just as important and having a positive conversation about it. You know, for my high schoolers, I always tell parents D equals diploma. Um, because as parents, we want our kids to do well in everything. And when your kids have autism, they're going to be certain things that they do really well in, and they're going to be things that they don't. And the, the wonderful thing about kids with autism is they know the things that they don't do well in, and guess what? They refuse to do them, right? And so we as parents, now we're struggling. Well, he's refusing to do the math. You know, they really hate math, and they don't want to show their work. So he's refusing to show his work. What do we do? He doesn't show his work. That's okay. If he can give you the answer and the answer is right, but he doesn't like showing his work, he doesn't have to show his work. That's why we communicate with the school because he's never going to show his work if he has autism and he doesn't want to. And that's okay. And so we have to let him know instead of forcing him to do things that other people do or trying to encourage him to do something well because somebody else does it well. We have to accept that he doesn't like it. He doesn't do it well. And it's okay. And have conversations with him about it being okay so that he's empowered by that, you know, so that he, if he's ever questioned by another kid, well, why don't you do that? You know what? Because I don't like it and I don't have to do it. We've got to have those conversations and be positive so that they in turn can have those conversations and be positive. We'll only change the conversation about autism when those who have it and those who are supporting it can stand up and say, yes, he is different and we love his differences. And so continue to have the conversations. I can't give you the words to use because I don't know what they are, but I'm sure you're going to find the words and he will help to, to dictate and to direct you as to what those words are. Follow his cue. Okay. Thank you. You are so welcome. I have another question if no one else has one, but I didn't want to jump in with you. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Go for it, Caroline. Okay. So this is specific about autism again. So I have a six-year-old son. I also have a four-year-old daughter. Uh And I know that autism presents very differently in girls. She does not have a diagnosis. And most of the time I think, you know, it's not, she doesn't have autism. She's, you know, neurotypical. Um, But then she'll do things sometimes. And I'm like, is this how autism shows in girls? Could you talk a little bit about how it does present in girls? Because I know that's Uh a very uh, understudied population. Yes. And, you know, it's funny because I've gotten a lot of questions about that this year for whatever reason, but it does. It presents very differently and it's often missed because it presents differently. The biggest difference in girls is that they are social. Okay, they are. I call a girl with autism the great pretender. So what happens is girls will tend to look around them to see what everybody else is doing. And then they do that. So elementary school is a lot easier for a girl with autism to slide under the radar because they're just looking at their friends. And if, you know, Susie is playing, you know, with uh, a Barbie, she's going to go play with the Barbie. She might not like playing with that Barbie, but she's going to do it because that's what all the other girls do. Girls with autism tend to be less emotional as far as like meltdowns. You know, boys will will be much more aggressive and they'll have much more, uh, more meltdowns than girls will have. But you'll find that particularly a girl, once they start school, will come home exhausted because they've just pretended for eight hours, right? And they come home and you'll find that the, the teachers will say, oh, your child is perfect. But then you'll have some behavior issues at home 
because they're, they're tired and they can't keep up the front anymore. Um, and so there'll be that kind of that disconnect. Like, I don't know who you're seeing at school because I'm seeing somebody different at home. What is going on? What's also difficult for siblings, whether it's a boy or a girl of a child who has autism, a younger sibling is uh, younger siblings tend to mimic behaviors of older siblings. So particularly a girl who's a, a great pretender who has a, a brother with autism, there may be some behaviors that you're like, where did that come from? Because they might see their brother doing it and might not know, well, that's an autistic characteristic and they mimic, they choose to mimic that. And that's not truly who they are. So it's gonna be difficult at this age for a girl to know whether she has autism or she doesn't. What I would say to you is, doesn't matter at this point. It really doesn't matter. She is who she is. Love on her, enjoy her, support her. And, you know, expect that as she, you know, if she does have autism, it's probably going to show itself a little bit further into elementary school. But if you have any behaviors that are concerning, other thing I'll tell you about kids with autism is if they have autism, certain behaviors will be consistent no matter what you do to try to change that because that's who they are. But if they don't have autism, so let's say your daughter is just picking up a characteristic from her brother. If you try to change that behavior, um, most kids who are four, if they're doing something that you don't want them to do, you can redirect and they'll change that behavior. OK, so if you redirect and you can't change the behavior, no matter what you do, then it's more likely that that is a behavior that's part of them. And if it's a behavior you're super concerned about, then bring it to your pediatrician so that they can do an evaluation. But don't be surprised if they say to you, well, does she have friends? And if you say, well, yeah, she has friends, they may say, oh, well, she couldn't have autism because she has friends. That is wrong. Girls with autism have friends and they're social. So don't fall for that one. Did that help at all? Did I answer your question? It did. Yes. And okay. I know what you said about, you know, it doesn't change anything. I completely agree with you. You know, if it's not, it doesn't seem to be impacting her in any way whatever is going on with her could just be being four. I tell myself all the time, could definitely just be being four. So we'll just wait and watch every day. You know, watch every day. Here's one thing I will tell you though. The thing that's concerning about girls with autism, because we often miss it when they're younger, if they can get into middle school and we haven't caught it yet, you'll start seeing more um, emotional problems. So you'll see more anxiety. You'll see more depression in kids and girls. And one of the phrases that they will typically say is, I don't think I fit in. And what that, what that saying is, you know, when they were in elementary school, they had smaller class sizes. They could have that one friend that followed them the whole way. And they could pretend with that one friend. You get to middle school and now you've got all these people in different classes. You can't find that group right? And so oftentimes that's when we'll see it in girls because they start feeling anxious and depressed because they don't, they can't pretend anymore because they can't find that, that group to pretend with and to fit in. And so one of the things they'll say is I don't fit in. So if you notice any of that, any anxiety, depression, or saying, I just, I, I can't relate, definitely have her evaluated. How are you as a parent supposed to support, support yourself so you can then support your child? So if you're not sure, and, and I think this is, I'm glad you asked this question because I think this is a question a lot of parents have, at least they've expressed it to me, because they feel like, I think I've got ADHD, or I think I might even be on the autism spectrum, but 
what do I do now? The problem is as an adult, there are very few adult doctors who understand ADHD or autism and can even diagnose. So a lot of parents will come back and say, well, I went to my doctor and they said, well, if you have ADHD, who cares? You made it this far, right? I take care of a lot of military who have a lot of, you know, military and they'll go and they'll be told, well, you know, we can't diagnose autism if you're a military member. So what do they do? Um, so it's a little bit different for adults. What I would say, there are adult surveys online. Most of the time, your family practitioners, if you force it, if you say, look, I understand I made it this far, but I need to know, um, they will do an evaluation. A psychologist will do an evaluation for you. Um, when it comes to having autism, I tend to, to talk to parents about, do you really want the diagnosis or not? As an adult, you have to make a decision of whether you want to know or whether you don't want to know. I will tell you though, because ADHD and autism are federally recognized disabilities, just like we have to by law support kids in the school system, adults have to by law be supported in the workplace. So that's important to know, because if you're an adult who's struggling in the workplace and you feel like your ADHD is really interfering, you can get accommodations. You just have to let your workplace know. OK, so the thing is, is it can be difficult. You finding that support for yourself while you're trying to help your child. But it's imperative that you do that. OK, a formal diagnosis is not as important in an adult as it is in kids. But knowing that those characteristics exist is key, okay? It is key. And where I would start would be with a behavioral specialist, like a, um, a psychologist or a social worker or a licensed professional counselor who has experience with uh, adults with ADHD, because it's those behavioral skills that you need help with. How do I organize myself? How do I get to my appointments on time? How do I get my kids to their appointments on time? How do I help them with their homework and still cook? There are skills that they can teach you to, to do that. Um, and so I would say those are the skills that are going to greatly impact your ability to help your child. So those are the skills you want. For some parents, medication is key. OK, and for them, they don't necessarily have the time to do the behavioral therapy because they got their kids and they've got their work. And, and so for a lot of adults, taking the stimulant medicine is what helps them to focus right away so that they can get all the things done that they need to get done. The last thing that I will say for parents who may think that they have ADHD is it is a superpower for you as well. People who have ADHD can genuinely multitask. You know, I know we all talk about, oh, I'm multitasking. We are not efficient multitaskers. But if you have ADHD, you, your brain has the capacity to do multiple things at one time and get them all accomplished. We just have to teach you how to do it. So if you have ADHD and you're an adult and you're concerned, like, how do I take care of myself and take care of my kids? Get that therapy. Learn that skill set of how to get your, your executive functionings in check. Because when you do that, oh my God, you'll be able to take care of those kids, take care of you, take care of your husband, take care of your job. You will be amazing. So if you have to put your kids therapy on hold for a second so that you can focus in on you and you learning those skills, do it. Do it, do it, do it. And last thing I'll say, if your adult doctors don't know how to help you, go to your kid's doctor, okay? 
I started taking care of adults because the adults would say to me, I think I have ADHD. And I'd say, yep, I think you do too. And then they couldn't get any help. And I just said, I'm a pediatrician, but these are neurodevelopmental things. So I'm going to take care of adults too. Um, So if all else fails, go to your kid's doctor and get the diagnosis and the help from them. I hope that answered your question. It did. I actually do have ADHD. I've been diagnosed for a while, but I do know other friends who are like, yeah, my kid's diagnosed. I was like, so maybe one of you. (laughs) And, And first it's the acceptance. And then it's the, I get questions of where do I get help? And I think that's a big question a lot of people have. Yeah, yeah. It's hard as an adult. It's hard. CHAD is a great organization. It's got information for adults as well. So that's another place to start if you're an adult with ADHD or you think you might have it. And then Autism Speaks. I know a lot of people don't like Autism Speaks, but they've got a great, great information for adults with autism if you think you might be an adult with autism. So that's always a great place to start with those two organizations. Another great resource that I uh, found was called Attitude Magazine. Oh yeah, they're good too. Mm -hmm. They're they're fantastic if you haven't used them. And they have resources for adults as well as children. They do. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Joni. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. It was so fun to spend some time with you. It Um, was. Can I just put one plug out there? Of Absolutely. Course. Is that okay? So I have a Facebook group. It's called From Surviving to Thriving with Dr. Joni. Um, and it's intended for individuals with uh, either individuals who have uh, ADHD, autism, learning issues, or those who support it. But really, it's for anybody. And so I would definitely say to you, if you, you know, are dealing with some of these issues, some of the things we're talking about, or you have questions about it, that is a great way to access me. I'll take any questions I get and I put out, I do a live every Saturday talking about all these different kinds of topics. And uh, so it's just there for resource and information. So join the Facebook group. You are truly a blessing. You are. Thank you. You absolutely are. It was such a joy to speak with you today. Couldn't you just listen to Dr. Joni speak all day? I am so appreciative of the obvious passion she has for her work. And I love her messaging around the superpowers of those that have a learning or neurodevelopmental difference. Here are our top three takeaways from our time with Dr. Joni. One, being different doesn't automatically mean that something's wrong and needs to be fixed. Often society paints certain differences to be bad. While many differences can bring a host of challenges with them, they can also be filled with beautiful gifts if we take the time to look for them. For neurodevelopmental and learning differences, it's helpful to look at real-life examples of the superheroes who have accomplished great things, not in spite of their differences, but because of them. Dr. Joni approaches her patients with autism, ADHD, and mood and behavioral disorders not like they need to be fixed, but simply like they need TLC, understanding, appreciation, and most importantly, support. Perhaps we can all take a note from her book and shift how we approach those in our world that present with a myriad of differences. Two, being a parent is hard. That's not news to anyone. I'm going to broaden our discussion from today just a bit from neurodevelopmental and learning differences to also include any of the thousands of challenges mothers face when raising a child. 
As mothers, we will undoubtedly face a time when our child is made to feel less than. They are behind. They are struggling. They are suffering. We must bear witness to their pain and not fall apart ourselves. To have that tough yet soft exterior is a massive balancing act that takes a deep level of emotional strength. We've all heard the saying, you can't fill someone's cup if your own cup is empty. It may sound cliche, but it is so, so very true, particularly if our child's challenge is ongoing. Parents need to be able to pause, assess their own state of mind, and take the necessary steps to fill their own cup. You matter too, mama. Your health, your well-being, your care, it matters too. Three, you are not alone, but you do need to be prepared to go to bat for your child. In far too many instances, parents need to take on an active advocacy role for their child when it comes to their healthcare and schooling accommodations. As a parent, you know your child best and you know when something is off. Doctors may know certain diseases very well. They may know certain medications very well, but they do not know your child the way you do. You know when something is off. You know when something needs to be looked at further. If in your gut, you know something is not right, you should be prepared to seek out second and even third opinions. You may have to work to assemble the right team to stand beside you, but it's worth the effort to find the right providers and support. The team approach is also vital because it is doubtful that one individual will have all the answers you will need to navigate a journey, for example, with an autistic child or a young one suffering from a mood or behavioral disorder. There is power in knowledge. Don't shy away from asking the hard questions and don't shy away from asking for help. Hi, five friends. We had so much fun with you. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave a review. We love hearing what you have to say. Until next time, stay true to you.